Psalm 3. It goes as follows. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. According to its title, this psalm was penned in connection with that time when David had fled from his son Absalom. And we have recorded in 2 Samuel 15 the account of Absalom's intrigue, his conspiracy, his deception, all of which were designed to undermine and overthrow his father David, the king of Israel. Absalom, the renegade, rebellious son, was all intent on taking the crown, was all intent on taking the throne, even if it meant murdering his father. And there's no doubt that at this time, David was experiencing the chastising hand of God. And for what reason? Well, for the sin of adultery he had committed with Bathsheba, and also for the sin in, in murdering her husband, Uriah. If you go back to Second Samuel chapter 12, there you'll see that sometime after David had tried so hard to conceal his sins, God, through the prophet Nathan, confronted him. And right after showing David the egregious wickedness of his deeds, Nathan informed David as to the consequence of his sins, the consequence he would face for his sins. Nathan said to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And of course, David at this point did the right thing. He did the wisest thing. He humbly confessed his sin. And in response to his confession, of his sins, David was assured, Nathan assured him in verse 13, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. But here's what he said to him in verse 14. Nevertheless, because this deed you have utterly 
Because of this deed, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So David came under the chastising hand of God in two ways. One, the child that was born of that illicit union died. Two, the sword was to be ever against his house, an allusion to what turned out to be his son Absalom seeking to kill him and take over the throne of Israel. What a sad situation David found himself in at this point. And it's a painful lesson that many a person, yes, many a child of God, has learned, and that is that God's forgiveness of sins does not preclude one's paying the painful consequence of those sins. There are certain sins which, even though forgiven by God, have their consequences as far as um, temporal aspect of things are concerned. Sometimes people live certain kinds of lifestyle, they become saved, they become converted, and yet, even though gloriously saved, wonderfully saved, that sin nevertheless has its consequences in time. So whereas David had been freely and fully forgiven by God, he nevertheless went through a bitter period of running for his life of constantly facing the threat of the sword right from within his own family because of the sobering fact that sin has consequences. My friends, you can write beside the narrative of David's sins and his experience of God's judgment, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, which warns, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So as we come to Psalm 3, which portrays David in the throes of that agonizing experience of fleeing from Absalom, we hear him crying to the Lord in verses 1 and 2, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising up against me. We hear that plaintive cry, we hear that sorrowful cry, David is overwhelmed by numerous foes. And as we look back in 2 Samuel 15, we know exactly what David was talking about there. For there we learn that over a period of time, Absalom, his son, had amassed to himself quite a massive following. In fact, after he had requested leave of his father to ostensibly go and pay his vow to the Lord in Hebron, verses 7 and 8, 2 Samuel 15, verses 10 through 12 records, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. We read in verse 11, With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Verse 12, and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy, here's what the word of God says, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. That was the background against which David cried here in verse 1. When he says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising up against me. 
We can only imagine the painful plight that David was in at this point. Talk about the pain of betrayal, betrayal from someone close, betrayal from a family member, betrayal from his own son. David felt not only the pain of betrayal, but David felt the pain of alienation. Imagine what it must have been for David to have been fleeing from one who was so close to him, his own son. He must have felt as well the pain of humiliation. So there was a pain of betrayal, there was a pain of alienation, and now the pain of humiliation. He said, in what way was David humiliated? Well, as king, to flee from the throne of Israel, the governance of Israel, to be on the run from not an enemy, an external enemy, but from his own son, was not at all good optics. Because, you see, no doubt sent the message that David was in no way fit to run the kingdom. He was in no way fit to take the throne because he did not have his own family under control. We're reminded of what the what Paul says in the New Testament, for if a man does not know how to govern his own household, how then will he govern the church of God? And added to these pains, David's experience was clearly the pain of taunts and malicious aspersions that were being leveled against him. Because we read in verse 2 his complaint, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You'll notice there the, 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 the little term sila, and it is believed that that means stop and think. What David is suggesting there is this, I was in terrible straits, I was in great situation of desperation, stop and think about that. And essentially what he was saying was that on every hand, there was the popular prevailing assumption that God had abandoned him. That God had forgotten him. No doubt his enemies were saying of him, he really is in a bind. God is through with him. Not even God can help him. God has given up on him. And even as they hounded him, even as they were in hot pursuit of him to eliminate him, they were no doubt torturing him mentally and emotionally. God has forgotten him. And so the painful plight David experienced, the pain of betrayal, the pain of alienation, the pain of humiliation, the pain of having these kinds of aspersions leveled against him. But then what a wonderful turn we have in this psalm because we not only see the plight he experienced, but we see the powerful protection he found. The powerful protection he found. According to verse 3, David found, first of all, security in the Lord. He found security in the Lord. Here's what he says, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. A shield, as you know, was used in combat. And a shield, by his use of the word shield, David is referring to the protective coverage he found in the Lord. The particular shield he refers to here was not the ordinary shield which covered just one side of the body. How do we know that? We know that this was not the shield he was referring to. The shield of which he speaks here 
was that of God himself who protected him on all sides. Here in verse 3, the observation has been made that David's statement of trust did, begins, it began not with I, but with you. He did not say, I trust in you. He did not make himself the subject. And the thought here, suggested here, is that trust has its basis in the Lord, not in the one who is believing. David was confident in the Lord as his shield, but David was also confident that God would both restore his dignity and position as king in Israel. And this is reflected in his referring to the Lord as my glory and the lifter of my head. In other words, he says, God will, what he's actually saying is that God is going to restore my dignity and he's going to restore my position. Recall that in Genesis chapter 40, verses 13 and 20, that Joseph, as he interpreted the, the butler's dream, he told him there in Genesis 40, verses 13, how that in three days, Pharaoh would lift up his head and restore him to his office. It's the same language that's being used here, where David speaks of God as his glory and the lifter of his head. David is saying here, my shield is in you, my security is in you, but also I'm looking to you to restore my dignity and to restore my position as king in Israel. David found security in the Lord. Second, David found salvation in the Lord. He found salvation in the Lord. Verse 4, he says this, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. What David is saying here simply is this. God came through for him. He was in straits. He was in terrible straits. He was in deep distress. He was in a situation that was, humanly speaking, impossible for him to get out of. But God came through mightily for him. God came through for him by responding to him in powerful and practical ways. First of all, God responded to him by providing him with solace. God responded to David by providing him solace. He provided him comfort. He found solace in the Lord. Look at the A part of verse 5. David says there, he testifies, I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. Think of that. In the midst of trouble, in the midst of tension, in the midst of threat upon his life, David is saying here, I lay down and slept. David was able to sleep amidst all that was going around him. As we would say, he slept like a baby. And no, his was not the sleep of depression and despondency. You know, there are people who, when they are depressed, when they are sorely depressed, when they are despondent, they do nothing but what? Sleep, 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 sleep. In fact, they will tell you, I wish I would never get up again. I just sleep, sleep, sleep. And that sleep is a way of finding escape. But notice that as far as David was concerned, his sleep arose from the fact of God's comforting grace. We recall in Psalm 127 and verse 2, the psalmist says there, God gives his beloved sleep. 
God was the one who was comforting David. God was the one who enabled David, even amidst the tension, even amidst the threat on his life, to sleep and sleep like a baby. And not only did the Lord provide David with a comforting blessing of sleep, but the Lord awakened him. This shows further he, he was not given to despondency. He was not sunk into despondency because here's what he says there in verse 5. He says this, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And so it was, David found sustenance in the Lord, verse 5b, but not only did he find sustenance in the Lord, he found steadfast courage in the Lord. Look at verse 6. Because there in verse 6 we see that notwithstanding the intimidatingly immense forces that were arrayed against him to swallow him up as it were, he said this. David confidently said this with a spirit of steadfast courage. He says this, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all Around. You're talking about threat, serious threat on his life. His own son is intent of on hounding him and murdering him. And yet David says, what with all these forces? I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Compare this with Psalm 27 verses 2 and 3 when he says this by way of testimony. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. What words of assurance we have in these words. Now, what is truly remarkable as we look at verses 3 to 6 is the strong confidence, the impressive faith that David had in God, despite the fact that he was under the disciplining rod of God. Though he no doubt knew that God was dealing with him, chastising him, notice, he nevertheless had firm faith in the mercy and grace of God. So notice, rather than complaining, rather than becoming bitter, he cried to the Lord. And in so doing, verse 4, the Lord heard and answered him. He did not let the fact that he was being chastised by the Lord cause him to become bitter. He actively, intentionally trusted the Lord. And here, once again, we see something of the impressiveness of David's confidence in the Lord, particularly as we look back at 2 Samuel 15, 24 through 29, because in that narrative, 2 Samuel 15, 24 to 29 tells how that as David fled from Absalom, Abiathar, and Zadok came with the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. We read in verses 25 through 29, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back. Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. He tells Zadok how that he will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from him. So Zadok, and verse 29, and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem 
and they remained there. You say, in what way was David's faith impressive at this point? The ark, as you know, represented the powerful presence of God in the midst of his people. The ark, you recall, was with Israel when they were crossing the Jordan. The ark oftentimes accompanied Israel in battle. The ark represented the presence and power of God in the midst of his people. But here it was, David relied not on the ark of the Lord. Instead, David relied on the Lord of the ark. David's faith, you see, was rooted in the presence and power of the living God himself. He would not superstitiously look to the ark. He would not trust in that physical object, but he would trust in the living God himself. He says, take it back. And the essence of what he's saying is this. If the Lord favors me and if he spares me, then I will return. And indeed, his word prevailed. And hence, his faith in God was manifested his strong firm faith in God he was saying as it were I do not need a visible representation of God's presence I need the actual living presence of God himself not the ark of the Lord but the Lord of the ark is what will protect me (laughs) the question is why was David able to trust the Lord in such impressive manner And the answer is right there in our text. Verse 8, David was able to trust the Lord in such impressive manner because in verse 8, notice he confessed this, that salvation belongs unto the Lord. That's why his faith was so strong. In believing that God would spare him, that God would protect him, that God would deliver him even in the absence of The ark. Well, as we close, and this is a brief study, what are the lessons, the overarching lessons we can take from this psalm? And I think it's very clear, first of all, as we hinted earlier, as we stated earlier, the first point I want to lay before you is this, that even though forgiven by God, our sins may have certain temporal consequences. Certain temporal consequences. repercussions (coughs) it's very evident from the text secondly times of divine chastening are times when we particularly need to seek the Lord seasons of chastisement can easily lead to one becoming one's becoming hardened and bitter toward God By God's grace, this was not the case with David. Even though he was under the afflicting rod of God, even though the heavy hand of God was upon him, this did not in any way diminish David's faith in God. David nevertheless did what? He cried to the Lord. He confessed that he was in distress. He confessed that his his circumstance was overwhelming. Perhaps I'm speaking to someone who has been going through a season of adversity which may or may not be the result of God's chastisement. You might be growing disgruntled toward God. You find yourself doubting and 
grappling with the thought of walking away from the faith, here is something that you need to remember with regard to God's chastening hand, with regard to adversities, with regard to trials we encounter in our lives. Here's what we need to remember. We need to remember that God sometimes allows his people to go through trials, seasons of trials, which can be very painful. He can, through chastisement, take his child, his children, through severe difficulties. But the comforting thought we need to bear in mind is this, that whether they function as trials, whether they function as chastisement, they serve not to destroy us, but to develop our faith, to develop our character, to make us more spiritually fruitful and godly. If it is that the Lord is afflicting you because of sin in your life, because he's chastising you for sin, then that's a clear token of his goodness and his grace. Why? Because he might have left you alone to your own destruction. That's a clear sign, a clear token of his goodness, of his grace, the fact that he would chastise his children. In fact, listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, and with this we close. The writer says there, have you forgotten? He's writing to his discouraged readers who are going through As we would say, hell and high water, they were between the devil and the deep blue sea, oppressed, harassed, persecution, opposition. And he says to them in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when Reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Here's what he says, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, that is to say, all God's children have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That was David's experience. And David, we see in Psalm 3, moves from a cry of agony to a cry of triumph. His faith was rooted in God, even though he was experiencing the painful, chastising hand of God, he nevertheless trusted God because he realized in the end that God was in control. God was working for his good. That's the thing we always need to remember. God has our best interests at heart, even when he brings us under the rod.